and again a warm welcome to St. Michael's. My name is Rupert Charkham and I'm the vicar here and I'm mildly jealous of Harvey who got a clap as he walked up. <laughs> Thank you Harvey, it was wonderful what you shared with us. I'd like us to pray together now following Harvey's suggestion actually that God would open up our hearts and our eyes and our ears that we might hear him and see him and let him into our lives tonight afresh. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for these familiar songs we've been singing. And we pray that tonight you would refresh our sight of you. I pray that you'd take the words I prepared and you'd use them to make yourself great in this place. We want to know you better, Lord Jesus, each of us. Amen. So here we are. Christmas is upon us again. In two weeks' time exactly, it will be Christmas Day. And I wonder how Christmas is going for you, how you're limbering up. Some people view Christmas, of course, with excitement, some with exhaustion, some with a sense that they'll need endurance, and some just don't focus at all. That we just go into kind of autopilot mode. I've, I've discovered there is a word for this that psychologists use for when you do a task so often that you can do it from memory without even focusing at all. And most common examples of this are driving home from work, say, or walking, you just do it without thinking. And it's called automaticity. And I think lots of us go into that kind of mode when Christmas is around the corner. And it takes something a bit unexpected to jolt us out of that automatic pilot. And from what I've been reading, the unexpected most often happens in nativity plays. This morning we had a wonderful nativity play and I'm glad to say um, not too much unexpected happened, although I did think the baby Jesus was going to be rattled to death by the person who's holding. <laughs> but I remember a nativity play in a former church of mine where one sheep very nearly successfully murdered another. That, that was quite good. And then I read just last week about a true incident that happened between the three wise men I think, you know, we know them as the Magi, but one by one they're Magus. And Magus number one bowed down and proclaimed, I bring you gold! At which point Magi, Magi number two uh, got Q-jumped. As King number three bowed down and shouted, and I bring you myrrh! And the rather put out Magus number two got lost for words, couldn't remember what he was trying to say. And the pause went on just that second too long. And then with a flash of inspiration, he said, Frankie sends his love. <laughs> well, just one more, a different edition, where they had the clever ploy of picking on a precocious child to be the narrator at the side of a stage while the action was going on in the middle. And the narrator could read the script and was doing fine until they ad-libbed and went off script in a moment of overconfidence. Here are the three kings bringing their gifts, gold, Frankenstein, and myrrh. <laughs> well, no doubt 
no doubt you've seen the play many times, and God willing, you'll see it many more times. But have you read the book? Because we know that films and plays of books often stray a long way from the original. And probably over time, most of us have done to Christmas what Netflix have done to the royal family. We've added so many embellishments and exaggerations and speculations in the cause of entertainment that quite honestly it's easiest to write off the whole thing as fiction, dress as fact. And certainly the Christmas story over the years has been garnished and furnished with all sorts of embellishment. Well, that's not surprising over 2,000 years or so, is it? And there's a lot about my Christmas, if you could walk through it with me, that I absolutely love that isn't there in the book. In the book, there's no mention of snow. I don't think you can find a turkey in the script. There are no Christmas trees. There are no Christmas carols or cards or minced pies or mulled wine. But frankly, what's not to like about all of that? I love it. So I'm not a downer on any of those things. But in this short time that we've got together, I do want us just to focus on the book which tells us the story. And of course, that book, as you know, is the Bible. And if it was in a library, you wouldn't find it in the fiction category. And there's a reason for that. It's factual. It's history. Now, it's not much of a spoiler alert, is it, that Christmas revolves around a baby. And that baby has a name, and his name is Jesus. But it's important for us to just take on board, he really lived. If you look up Jesus on Google and you end up at Wikipedia, the first thing you will read about him is, Jesus is a historic figure. Virtually all modern scholars of antiquity agree Jesus existed historically. And Luke, at the beginning of his gospel, makes a point of saying that he's gone to great lengths to meet people who met Jesus and to write an orderly account of what they told him. Now, given that it's a historic story, what kind of a story is it? And the first thing to notice, and we often don't, is it's a very long story. It's a long time in the making. And if we start reading the story just in the New Testament, we're starting over halfway through the book. And if you start reading any book over halfway through, it's, it, it's, you're shortchanging yourself somewhat. Sufficient to say that the first idea of Jesus coming begins way back. Its genesis is in Genesis, as a matter of fact, the very first book of the Bible. And it's a promise, a prophecy, that one day, one day, God would raise up a messianic figure, literally an anointed one, who would restore the fractured relationship between God and his creation. And you had read already tonight what to many of us is a familiar reading from Isaiah, telling us that when this Messiah, this anointed one, comes, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and his government will have no end. And there are allusions to the coming of this child 
scattered throughout the Old Testament. You can find them in Genesis, Daniel, Deuteronomy, Ezekiel, Hosea, Micah, Malachi, Isaiah, Jeremiah, for example. So this book is in the history section. And between the covers, when you read it, what kind of a story is it? Well, it's many types of a story. I think the thing I want to major on as a question for us tonight is this. It's a whodunit. It's a whodunit. The question is this. Just who is this baby? And that's a big question. And a lot hinges on what you make of him. And as you read an account of his life, if you do, do so, you'll find that the people round about him frequently ask themselves that question. Just who is this man, Jesus? Of course, at his birth, there were certainly some remarkable signs. The shepherds in the fields, the angelic choir, those mysterious magi. But it's not just at his birth. Those that trekked around with him in his shadow, the group we know as the disciples, Jesus' friends. On one occasion, quite early on in their partnership, as it were, they're in a boat with him on the Sea of Galilee. And a great storm springs up out of absolutely nowhere. And they were experienced fishermen. If it was one place they felt very at home, it was in boats and on the sea. And they thought they were going to drown. And they wake Jesus up. He's asleep in the stern of a boat on a cushion, we're told. And Jesus stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. And he says, quiet, be still. And to their complete astonishment, the wind and the waves stop just like that. And they were left saying to themselves, who is this? Who is this? that even the wind and the waves obey him. It's a whodunit for them. And then, jumping to John's gospel, there's a time when Jesus talks to a woman who'd lived a very broken life, and she was on her own in the middle of the day, and Jesus has a life-changing conversation with her. And she goes off and she gets her friends, and she says, come and meet this man who's told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Messiah? Who is this? Two things in particular caused people to ask that question. One was the extraordinary things that Jesus did. He stunned people in his day by what he was able to do, to name but a few things. He turned water into wine. And when he did that at what's known as the wedding in Cana, the wine waiter said, why have you done this, talking to the host? You've kept the best wine till last. Most people use their best wine first, and when people are drunk, they give them the rubbish. But you've reversed the order. And when he asked that question, he didn't know who made that wine. It was Chateau Vintage, the Messiah, wasn't it? Who can do that? He opened the eyes of a blind more than once in the Gospels. And the Jews who were there gathered around him, quote, saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah... Tell us plainly. And there are a long list of things that we could dwell on, but I'm not going to, but I'll mention in passing some of them. Walking on water, those multiple healings, casting out demons, feeding over 5,000 people through multiplying just a couple of fish and a few loaves. These are clues 
This is no ordinary life. So how would you crack the question? What kind of life, what kind of guy is this? In John's gospel, very near the beginning, we're told about Jesus. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. There is a recognition problem or challenge hanging over this baby. It's not just the things that he did. It's the things that he said. Today, all around the world, people are still studying the sayings of Jesus. And even as he spoke them out, people were puzzled and said, where did he get all this learning? He hasn't been to any recognized rabbinical school, but his teaching is so profound. Some years ago, before I actually became a follower of Christ, I saw a full page, I suppose you could call it an advertisement, but it wasn't so much that, it was a notice. And this is what it said, and I find it quite striking. It's talking about Jesus. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village and he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He had no credentials except himself. And while he was still young, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away, one of them denied him, and he was turned over to his enemies. And after a mockery of a trial, he was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. And while he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on, it, on earth, which was his coat. And when he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. All the armies that ever marched and all the navies that have ever been built and all the parliaments that have ever sat and all the kings and queens that have ever reigned put together haven't impacted life on earth so much as that one solitary life. Which is to say, it's not just his words and his works back then, it's his influence today. So it's a whodunit. But it's also a love story too. If we ask why Jesus came, the motivation is simply stated. God has come to help his people. Some years ago, I had the privilege and pleasure of meeting a lady called Frances Dominica. And she founded a children's hospice in Oxford looking after children who were terminally ill themselves and welcoming their families and assisting them as best they could. And I heard her talk about the work that she was part of. And one of the things that she said has stayed with me, it was the loneliness of people in deep, deep trouble. And she gave an illustration of it. She said quite often after someone's child died, their friends scattered away from them because they didn't really know what to say and they felt uncomfortable and the whole thing was really rather embarrassing. And she gave an example of someone who told her that they were going around the supermarket and they saw a friend out of the corner of their eye at the end of the aisle. And for understandable reasons, but sad reasons, that friend disappeared. 
Well, God shows his love in just the opposite way. God shows his love by drawing close to us when we're in trouble. And one of the striking things, whichever way you look at it, about the Christmas event is the vulnerability of the baby in the manger, isn't it? We've already sung tonight, he who made the starry skies now within a manger lies. God chose to draw close to his people, to you and me, a people in trouble. I read not so long ago of a marvelous story of a world-famous cellist, Rostropovich. In 1989, he heard about the death of a baby daughter of his friend, who was a sumo wrestler. And uh, Rostropovich flew from his home in the USA, unannounced to Tokyo. And then he took a one and a half hour cab ride to the man's house. And somehow he procured, I suppose, a, a seat to sit on. He got out his cello and he sat in the garden and he played a bark saraband as his gesture of sympathy. And then he got back in the taxi and returned to the airport to fly back to Europe. It was a work of compassion that drove him to do this. And it's an amazing thing he did. But God did even more. God came to live amongst his people. It's a love story. And something very remarkable when you come to think about it, that you and I didn't choose where we were born. We didn't choose the time of our birth. But he, God, had a choice. And he chose to be born in obscurity, in poverty, in vulnerability, at a time of international turmoil. Permacrisis would have been a good description of the time he was born. Why? Because he loves us. And wrapped up in the Christmas story is the name of this child, Emmanuel, God with us. And that this point a love story also becomes a rescue story because the way that God most obviously shows his love for you and for me is when he dies upon the cross I guess the most famous verse in all of scripture for many of us is John 3:16. many many years ago a friend challenged me long before I was a Christian and said Rupert have you ever read an account of Jesus' life for yourself? And on reflection, I don't think I had. And she said, well, why don't you read John's gospel? And then at the end of that, at least you'll have some idea of a person you tell me you don't believe in. And we can have a good argument about it if that's what you want. Now, in time, I did read it. And I want you to read it, frankly which is why I've had copies of John's Gospel that look like this put on the seats in the hope that you will quietly pop one in your pocket or your handbag or your coat and uh, slip, it, slip out with it and over the next few days you'll read it. And if you do, quite near the beginning of this very slim book, you'll come across these words. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. And then John continues, God didn't, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
at the heart of this Christmas story, as you know, is Jesus. And the name Jesus means God saves. In what way does he save us? Well, I, I'm not going to talk all that long about it, but in a way, you could think of it like this. He paid off our debts. He paid the bills for us. If you go into a china shop and you break a few things, you wouldn't be surprised if you had to pay for them. We understand that. There's justice in that. You can't really quibble about it. In our lifetime, we break all sorts of things. There will be people that we've hurt. There will be relationships that have broken down. And principally, the biggest breakdown in relationships is our breakdown of relationship with God himself. And that's something all of us have got in common. How do I know? Because scripture says it over and over and over again. It just comes naturally to us to live a self-centered life, a kind of me first life. I did it my way, if you like. It's a theme tune of a whole human race. And God knows this. And one of the reasons that he sent his son is to offer us a way back. It's as simple as that. That's why Jesus keeps saying, come, follow me, come, follow me. I'll be with you always, reaching out to us. And supremely on the cross, where God says, I love you this much, that I would lay down my life for you. And it's as if he takes us by one hand and walks us into the presence of God who he holds by the other. Some of you might remember a, a, a dreadful catastrophe that happened when a ship called the Herald of Free Enterprise sank just outside Zeebrugge Harbor. It happened on the 6th of March, 1987. And 193 passengers and crew lost their lives. And there was a man who was on that um, boat with his family. His name was Mr. Parker. And he described what went on like this. We were on the top side of a boat. And there was this dreadful sinking feeling like the boat was settling down as the water made its way up. And then an alien surrounding where the floor became a wall and some side walkways became shafts, Mr. Parker stretched out his six foot three inch body to create a human bridge. And he said this, as a party leader of myself, my wife, daughter and friends, my sole thought was to make sure they were safe. The fact other people might use me, great, but it wasn't my intention. I saw behavior where people pushed each other out of the way to save themselves, he said. After an estimated 20 people climbed across him, Mr. Parker was the last person to reach his six foot by six foot space where they had all landed. And he was later awarded the George Medal. But in his own words, this wasn't pre-planned. It, it was a spontaneous act. And it wasn't meant for everyone. It was just meant really for his family. And the fact other people climbed on board was fine. But God's life and love and death is different. And it was meant for a much wider group. It was pre-planned. He did see it coming. And he walked the walk willingly for you and me. It's a love story and a rescue story. 
But I close with a question. Is this going to become a personal story to you? Will it become a feel-good story for real? Sure, you might have had the experience of going out to dinner somewhere or lunch somewhere and you're having a perfectly okay time and suddenly another table in the restaurant bursts out, happy birthday! And you rather limply join in singing happy birthday, hoping you'll catch on the name of the person who it is so you two can insert that in the appropriate place. But it's still a stranger's birthday and you don't really get into it. But it changes completely if you're in the birthday party and you know and you love the person whose life you're celebrating. And Christmas can be just like that for you, as it is for me. Christmas is important to me because I celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ and he means the world to me. I want to draw to a close by reading something that the late Queen said in her Christmas broadcast of 2011, because she puts it so well. Here's what she said. Although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher or a general, important though they are, but a saviour with the power to forgive. In the last verse of this beautiful carol, O little town of Bethlehem, there's a prayer. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. And it's my prayer, she said, that on this Christmas day, we might all find room in our lives for the message of the angels and the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Over the years, I've found that many people like an opportunity to rededicate their lives to Jesus Christ. And in a moment, we're going to sing a wonderful carol in the bleak midwinter. And in the last verse of that carol, it gives each of us an opportunity, if we want to, to renew the gift of our lives to God in response to his love. Let me pray and then we will stand and we'll sing this carol. Father God, thank you for the Christmas message. Thank you for sending your son into the world, God with us. Thank you that you stand here with us tonight, willing to walk with any one of us through life, through death, and into the resurrection. We pray that tonight you would reach out to us and draw us into your company. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's stand.